Chase Irvin is a Canadian-American cinematographer making waves in the film industry. Chase has received immense critical acclaim for his vision and style. He has worked on features, shorts, and visual albums, most notably in his collaboration with director Khalil Joseph for Beyoncé's Lemonade. His first feature film, Medea's, won him the prestigious Best Cinematography debut at the Camera Image Film Festival back in 2013. Hannah, a 2017 film, won the Silver Hugo for cinematography from the Chicago International Film Festival. Chase is a member of the Canadian Society of Cinematographers and currently has two projects released within the last year, Netflix's Blonde and A24's God's Creatures. Chase Irvin, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi, nice to meet you. Well, I've been a fan of your work. First ever interview that we did for the creative process was with Joyce Carol Oates, who wrote Blonde. And so we discussed, of course, Marilyn Monroe. Now your film Blonde, it's not a biopic for those who haven't seen it. It's this completely inventive way of putting across not just the factual events. I think so many of us feel we know Marilyn Monroe's life. And I feel like you really brought across not just the events. Sometimes people said, okay, that veers a little bit away from the the linear facts as we know them. It's really art, not a biopic. But what it really conveyed very well to me is the way it may have felt like behind her eyes. Yeah, that's pretty accurate description. It's almost like in the later half of the film, it sort of almost represents a hallucination that she may be having. But in my mind, this was my interpretation of it is that she is at the basically reliving her life at the moment of death. So she's scattering through these memories as you're basically confronting all the demons that she may have had in her life before she lets go. Oh, that's a beautiful way of thinking of it. I hadn't grasped that it was at her moment of death, but that really makes a lot of sense because in the same way that you think of your life flashing before your eyes, that intensity, you know, it makes the, I wouldn't say jumps because it transitions, it, it's woven in this very dreamlike way. But it doesn't have all the explanations. Like we have to figure out the story as it might be happening. Yeah, it's main, mainly guided by how she must have felt in that moment. And we will recreate specific events. But actually, a lot of those events are void of spatial clarity. So it becomes almost an abstraction of that moment. And I think memory operates much in the same way. So it sort of reduces things down to the bare essentials. So you're sort of like weaving in and out of her story, jumping through time, ellipsing things, even things that may have been factual about how she loves somebody. We distort that in a way that must have embodied the sentiment that she might have had when she was passing away. Yeah. And I can imagine the challenge. And you've also done this like with your full length film on Beyonce as well. You know what the challenge is of bringing to the screen someone whose life has been so photographed and filmed. And then at the same time, again, this dreamlike quality, also the echoes of some of the still photographs or film images that we've seen, but then bringing it to life would have been static. So it has all those echoes that rings true, but then brings us closer to it. Because in the still image and the black and white, it was something we couldn't enter. Now we can enter. It's like an invitation to enter. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the core themes of the film and the book is the consequences of popular culture and how that sort of embodies that moment. 
and Marilyn as a metaphor for that. It would have been difficult to sort of deal with those themes with a person that didn't exist. It would have been a complete contrivance. So it's sort of like the book and the film comes at that theme in a really artful fashion because it's taking somebody who has existed in the collective so boldly that we've consumed her and altered her, you know, like... In the film, we're dealing with Norma Jean, but so much of popular culture is Marilyn Monroe. So we've taken this individual and we've created them into a symbol, sex symbol, really. And, and that's tragic. And I think that a lot of people have to deal with that type of thing. It really goes to like even Carl Jung's idea of persona and what that is and the various versions of ourself and our ego. Yeah. Being Marilyn Monroe, from all the accounts or people who described her as well, it was a great drain upon her. As I understand, you know, being a living, a moving icon, but it's still an icon. For her to summon that up, be that image, it took, like, it was exhausting for her. And sometimes then she would retreat and be unavailable. She became known as being a little bit difficult because she wouldn't arrive on time or whatever. It was a persona that she created, but at cost to her personal life, which is depicted in such a nuanced way on screen. Yeah, I actually feel like there's a depth to it that is not necessarily studied in our film, but I feel like she was coming up in an era where the craft of acting was changing quite a bit. Marlon Brando sort of brought to the theater, this, the cinema, a version of acting that was much more realistic rather than theatrical. And Marilyn studied at the actor's studio under the guise of Lee Strasberg. And Lee's wife was her acting coach on set. And one of the methods in that type of acting is you sort of, you try to access past traumas and emotions to portray the emotion with authenticity on screen. So I could see how even that with her traumatic past became really painful for her. And I guess she was captured in this time type of a situation where she wanted so deeply to express something with love and receive love. And that's how she knew how to receive love. But it was actually quite painful for her because she was constantly having to go and access these things that might stimulate some pain that she's still holding from the past. Yes. I know it's interesting because a lot of people who worked with her have spoken about her. And it was interesting, the analysis of Laurence Olivier, and you probably on your extensive research have seen these interviews. And he said that really she was the happiest in front of the still camera. Like she was like a child and so happy in a way that was like her real talent, like those amazing photographs that we have all these years later. And so that that was the conflict. There was a difficulty of her turning herself into a moving picture actress, whereas mm -hmm. she was just so talented at creating the still energy. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to stay so much on this, but I just really adored the film. And I think it's quite a challenge to address, as you say, the legacy of the mental illness of the, dealing with her mother and her fear of that being passed on to her, the mental illness or the sexual abuse, you know, being an orphan or being fostered and still being a child and still looking for affection and love from the parents that she didn't necessarily have in her life. And so many other things, of course, the sexual politics and the underside of fame. So all these things, you know, that's 
quite a lot to pack into one film. I don't know how to discuss your kind of planning process, because I know that we are also very instinctive, but just how do you weave it in a way that comes across as pure life and not as something that's checking off the themes? Yeah, it was really a novel experience working with Andrew Dominic, the director, because he'd been working on the project for an extended period, I think close to 10 years at the time. And by the time I was able to contribute, he had already accumulated a document of, I think, 780 or something like that pages, which were images depicting Marilyn's life. But he had made it in a particular order that reflected the screenplay. So it was essentially a storyboard, but it was actually using images from her life or from the period, for example, like there aren't any images from her childhood really that I saw, but we would have images of the Hollywood Hills and the type of cars that they drove at those times and the fire that had happened there. Like we had all this research and in the office where we were planning the film, we just created a massive collage of everything. We would list the scene and then we would have all the images that Andrew had had in his document in a vertical line below the scene. And we would just go around the whole office and room. And if you walked into the office, you would be able to see the film. And it was great information because Jennifer Johnson, our costume designer, and Florencia Martin, our production designer, had actual images of her and what she was wearing in that moment or the sets and that type of stuff. So it really contributed in a way that we could see the film in a way the spectator would consume it with images from her life and what we know of her and how she's been photographed more than anyone, I think, in history. So there was so much to go off of there. But then in my office, I also was trying to develop some of those ideas myself. And at one point during the preparation, Andrew had requested from me that I bring in some ideas and some tricks. I guess he would use the term tricks. And to me, I, I translated that into cinematic devices using light or optics or the frame rates or all these different things. And I had been developing that stuff when Andrew first requested that I consider the film. And I live in New York, but at the time I had a studio in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and I basically was using this jazz technique called woodshedding, where you basically isolate yourself and you come up with harmonic devices that then you can put in your pocket and play during the set. And it's sort of like you create events where you can stimulate happy accidents. So I was doing that, I think, over a six-month period, and I came up with a lot of different ideas. For example, the sequence where Marilyn's in the menage a trois, and she's having a three-way sex scene, and the image is distorting, and it's creating... Like, I found that idea. I went to Canal Plastics in New York, and I ordered a piece of polycarbonate that was mirrored on one side, and I was able to bend it, and I would shoot stuff in my studio, collaborating with Jack Martinez, a photographer who would cast different people and we would shoot things together. And basically through pre-production, I created, I couldn't even count how many cinematic devices. And it, they were happy accidents in a lot of ways, but in other situations, they were gifts that were given to me by collaborators. And I just had those in my pocket. And a lot of times they would come out spontaneously. Like if I saw a scene and I felt like there was a moment in which we could articulate in a more 
abstracted point of view, the core of the scene, let's do it. And I didn't always know those, the meanings behind it. It was much more intuitive than intellectual. But then Andrew also would contribute to that because he knew the ideas I would develop and he would know where to use them better than I would because he had written the film. So, I mean, he had a real, real understanding of what emotions were going on inside of her. And he wouldn't necessarily give those to me all the time, or nor would I ask. I didn't want to get too much of that in my head because a lot of times, even how a scene is depicted is so much informed by how the actor uh, or actress, uh, Anna de Armas, would interpret that dialogue or that emotion. In some ways, it could be very connecting, in other ways, very alienating. And the same dialogue exists in the screenplay, but it could be portrayed with two vastly different emotions. So I would always try to let my ideas be a response to that. Yeah, I'm a big believer in spontaneity and improvisation. And sometimes people don't understand that or they think, oh, it's automatic or it's not. Yeah, it's not like always logically thought out, but I always feel like it's even being more prepared than just standard, like I'm going to follow this shot list or whatever your discipline is, because you have to be so prepared that you can open yourself to, as you say, the risk and the chance. I guess it happens with in any collaborative project that there is some kind of spontaneity, but I really have a deep admiration for those who are open to that. If you've like plotted everything and you're just checking it off, you're missing something. You're missing the alchemy that can happen. When you have a great actress, I thought, you know, Anna de Armas was brilliant in this and so vulnerable and courageous too. Yeah, I agree. To speak a little bit more on that, I feel like it's very similar to a musician, like the pre-production process is that of conditioning and rehearsal. And you sort of come up with different philosophical means that, that would help sculpt an aesthetic view that contributes to the film. And then by the time you're in the production, you've rehearsed it. That idea, that philosophy is so much a part of you that it comes out instinctually rather than something like a shot list. Even shot lists in themselves, like a lot of times when I'm collaborating with other directors, I don't really get so much into shots. The director might, that might contribute to their philosophy more, but I'm actually much more interested in what's happening thematically and then giving the space to sort of respond to that. And it actually becomes much more intuitive. You can sort of know when in a scene, when it's, you know, two people talking and they're connecting and you can kind of get a sense of how that could be portrayed. And there's various modifications that you can do to that, whether it's like your observational or your representing point of view. There's a consensus among the collective of cinema people like directors and cinematographers that that's how you can tell that story. But then there's other sequences like when Marilyn's coming to the premiere and it's a frenzy and the fans are looking like they're going to consume her. And that sequence, the way it's written, I can interpret that as almost like to go back to the same musical analogy, like in a jazz way, it would be sort of a moment where the images get to give a solo on the song, on the theme, and express it strictly through metaphor and distort notions of reality. And as long as it's in harmony with what's happening psychologically. So to go back to the point, you have less of a shot list in mind for me. It's more like once I have a deep connection to what's going on psychologically and emotionally in the character, 
it sort of opens up a torrent of ideas just to come out and you can violate a lot of different traditions of cinema and just kind of go with whatever you're feeling. It does take a lot of courage. That type of sentiment didn't come to me automatically when I first started becoming a cinematographer. It was sort of developed over time. Because as you see the successes and failures of your expression of your craft, you sort of latch on to certain things that work and you stay away from things that didn't work. And for me, it was just the more risky things, I guess, the more things that defied expectations were really important to me. And I guess it even goes down to just like novelty. How do you create a need or a yearning in the spectator? You create a particular rhythm and then you change that rhythm. And then it's almost like a you try to sensitize your spectator to these ideas by defying a particular rhythm that you've set for them. It's kind of an abstract way to describe it, but that's the best I can think of. Well, speaking of abstraction, and you know, there's different grammars, right? And I'd heard that you're dyslexic. And I have people who are dyslexic in my life. And I'm also a visual artist, so I can kind of understand when you turn off language and this other part opens up to you. So I'm just wondering what the gift of dyslexia or this different way of seeing the world, you know, how that might have fed into your storytelling process. Yeah, I'm not like I was diagnosed as a child, but I'm not like not super clear on exactly if I fulfill all the pillars of what it is to be dyslexic. I just know that I rely on other senses to interpret the world around me. I don't know if that's a direct result of dyslexia, but like I can always sense sort of an attitude or a feeling in a room. My ability to observe is very strong, but then in other ways, my ability to communicate is very weak or weaker than I would like. It's hard to compare that with others, but it was like a lot of things that I have inside me. I guess when I walk into a space, I'm sort of trying to feel what it through other senses than actually interpreting it it's something that could be articulated in words. It's hard to describe, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like that type of intelligence that you would gather through understanding and reading scripture, my mind accommodates the same type of intelligence, but it diffuses through other senses. Whereas I think, yeah, it's weird. I have a lot of spatial clarity for example, I've traveled to different places in the world and one specific area like the Arnhem Land in Australia, I spent some time there doing a documentary. And when I would land somewhere, it's a completely alien environment. And me and a colleague would, you know, look for Aboriginal rock art sites and we'd travel in different areas. I knew exactly where we were and how to get back to where we were from. My senses completely guided me through that. I didn't take any notes. I could automatically know the path I took. Whereas my colleague, he's very intelligent, but he was completely lost. I think over time, my strengths were these other things that are skills that I developed. It's really interesting to me, actually. I wish I could consider it even with more depth because I feel like in some ways, like if you're diagnosed with a dyslexic disorder or you have that, you're going to deal with some sense of shame regarding it. And you're going to think of yourself as defective in that way. And I'm sure I had to deal with that. And in some ways, even later in my current life, I'm struggling with those demons. 
because you know in the society we we live in we use penitence to educate ourselves so or self-hate so i think there's something really interesting to study there that i actually haven't considered in the past well that's so interesting there's many ways to communicate and of course as you find the natural world you know there it's taking it in through the eyes even vibration and sensitivity to other colors and light that we don't see different animals bees orientate on the compass of the sun and like all this stuff so you have that and written language is only just very recent with arbitrary rules and just on a side note i did interview jack corner who was the paleontologist that kind of inspired the jurassic park and was consultant on all those films mm. And he's very severely dyslexic, but said his scent is very spatially aware. So like you said in Australia, you set him in a place and he can like find the dinosaur eggs. <laughs> They're like, yeah. where, he just knows where to go. So it's that spatial awareness, being able to go back in time. And so it's fascinating. And it's a deeper thing that's more essential. And that's how we communicated first. Yeah. And I think one of the things that also gets me curious about that is like, is excelling in some way, even if you're diagnosed with that, are you suffering some biological or chemical thing? But does that then stimulate a need, like a determination? And is then it the determinant will that's causing you to have that sensitivity? Do you know what I'm saying? It's really complex, but it's almost like it's much more need serving. Like each individual is going to deal with that thing in a different way. You know, I don't have any research or anything. In my mind, it would be much more about my upbringing, being diagnosed that, stimulating shame, me trying to prove to others through my determinate will that I have love to give and I'm not defective. So then I would push myself through whatever methods I have to excel, which I honestly can say that I found film to be that thing that I needed in cinema, like in my life, because I became obsessed. I remember finding meaning in it around the age of 20. And I just would watch three movies a day and write down a journal of how that movie made me feel and my sentiments behind it. And I would just try to develop this sort of like uh, this new understanding and language, but it was all like I had to be so determined to do that and obsessed. But it, it really comes down to this other thing that may be going on inside me that's from the past. Yeah, we're really opening up now to understanding this difference, you know, that we had this before, what do they call it, neurotypical feeling, oh, this is normal. And really, there's no normal, there's just sort of a standardized thing that we establish to get by. But there's so many different ways of looking at the world. And that's what's so beautiful with the art of film and television cinematography is that you can get behind somebody else's eyes and into their psychology. So I do want to go into that. I always was haunted by that sentence, Christopher Isherwood. He said, my goodbye to Berlin. I am a camera. I don't know if mm. that, that line struck you. Yeah, it does. It really is like how you consume and interpret any situation around you. It's interesting. Like I was even thinking just a moment ago about Indian philosopher, Judu Krishnamurti, who I admire quite a bit because he had said something that really informed my approach. He was having a debate with another intellect and an academic, and they were talking about thoughts. And Judu said, thoughts are a response to memory. You can never have a new thought. No thought can be new. 
And I really agreed with that. Anything that you're thinking is only a response to experiences that you've had in the past, and you're bringing those into the moment to calculate the future or something like that, whereas spontaneity and observation without evaluation, those things are fresh. Those things are things that you can respond to. I guess in a way that even that idea showed me the limits of thinking, to be honest with you. There's a limitation to it. No matter how great you are at thinking and preconceiving things, it's actually a form of your own limitations. And what actually happens on the set is that there's all these things spontaneously happening that are gifts that if you weren't awake enough or aware or in the moment enough to respond to them, they're going to flee and you're going to lose them. And if you can't capture those things, then I don't know how you're really expressing that humanity. Otherwise, I feel like a computer could generate a film much more perfectly than a human being. So Yeah, well, I don't want to think about that because we've been seeing the advances now. <laughs> we may all be out of jobs soon. <laughs> we could all just but, watch uh, it VR. But I want to say on that, because it's interesting you said the limitations of thinking. And I think that also, I think in talking about the gift of dyslexia or different ways of seeing is that which has limits our mind too. So like once we can define and label things, we almost to some extent stop seeing it. It's like, oh, that is that. Now I've labeled it and named it and I don't see it anymore. So it's actually a great gift, I think, to sometimes see beyond the language and the label to actually see it for what it is and not because language is a symbol. It's just a symbol that's been arbitrarily for yeah. convenience. Yeah. And so I think that the dyslexia are different ways of seeing. You're also seeing through kind of the bullshit too. You know? Yeah, I think it was Kafka who said all language is but poor translation, something like that. I might be butchering the quote, but I like that a lot. I think about it a lot. I feel like what we are trying to communicate or what we're trying to say about something or how we're doing, all these ideas, all these things, all these feelings are going through these things that are distorted or fragmented. We can never really communicate with absolute clarity what is going on. We're too limited. There's not a word for it, you know, and I like that. I think what it is to be human is to be less than perfect. And when I watch films and I see these scenes that sometimes make me feel sick or other times they make me happy, but they're executed with imperfections or maybe there's something wrong. You know, maybe the camera sort of conceals a moment that you would have liked to have seen, but then all of a sudden it becomes an interpretation because you're creating it in your mind because it's been concealed. But when you create it in your mind, you're projecting something from your own experiences as a human being onto the scene because you're going into memory. There's a lot going on. And those are all virtues to me. Those are all the things that make it beautiful because they are an articulation of humanness. Oh, I agree. I think that when something is too perfect and too complete, that, that there's no space for our imagination in that sense that every work of art and every film is a conversation 
among the many imaginations who made it and then of those who receive it. And it's amazing the different ways it can be received. And I just want to add this in quickly, being here in Paris and in Europe, the views on sexuality and nudity is a little bit more relaxed. And then when I saw how beautiful Blonde was made, but then I'd heard that some people received it from a puritanical point of view. I was like, oh, this was too much. <laughs> and it, that was a surprise for me. I mean, a little bit of nudity and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think we're sort of in a period where there's a lack of permissiveness. And I think there's sort of a constant moralistic debate about the rightness and wrongness of thing that's consumed. Like in America, there was even a debate about abortion and stuff like that stimulated by the film. That, But in our own mind, that was not a theme that Andrew and I discussed. It was much more about how she would have liked things to have happened differently in her life. You know, it was more a stimulus for emotions. It wasn't like a political thing that we were considering. So we're just in this moment, I think, in the collective consciousness of America. It's sort of captured in that kind of like, I guess I would label it violence. But in a way, I have always been curious about how people will perceive or receive the film as a collective, because I think it had some controversial ideas in it. And one of the things that I value most about the film is that the, the reaction to the film was actually a part of the artistic endeavor itself, because it is dealing with popular culture and how the collective views the persona and an individual and who the persona is outside of the individual. And the collective contributed to that film in that way, because they're projecting a version of Marilyn that they've consumed, that they have a connection with that our film violates. So it was like, for me, the movie was actually the reaction. <laughs> you know? One, two, three, four. My name is Trammell Sisson, and I'm currently a media arts major at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. I really appreciated the opportunity to sit down and listen to Chase Irvin speak. As a major nerd for cinematography and pretty much anything film, Hearing the processes and techniques of someone I truly admire is always going to be enlightening. Overall, I just feel like I took a lot from the interview, and while listening, constantly found myself applying his words and advice in terms of my own work. Spontaneity and genre blending have always been key elements in the screenplays I write, and I really appreciate what Chase had to say in regard to production and eschewing norms within the industry. So many movies in the Hollywood landscape lack the soul of the people who make them, often robbing their narratives and imagery of their humanity. The best moments and best ideas are the ones that aren't foreseen, the ones that come in a flash and can never be replicated. I feel like Chase summed this all up very well with his discussion on imperfection and its necessity. Films need that human element, a connection, and there is nothing more human than imperfection. It forges a true authenticity with the audience, one that's lacking more often than not. And I feel like that element is extremely evident in Chase's filmography. His approach to each project he tackles is a process in itself, and his ability to expand on his style while still keeping it his style really resonated with me. Each of his films has a distinct feel, whether it be the frenetic and lingering shots of Blonde, the snappy and clever camera work in Black Klansman, or the larger-than-life statements of Beyoncé's Lemonade. 
every film is rooted in its own messages, while remaining a testament to his style as a cinematographer. When I write screenplays usually, I try to imbue the same ideal. I can't stand to write the same thing more than once, and I always feel like bouncing around to wildly different ideas and plots keeps my brain on its toes. But even when writing something new, it's important to make it authentically yours. Whether it be through tone or the narrative itself, you can ingrain yourself into your work while still remaining completely original, and that was ultimately a large takeaway for me. Many of Chase's points throughout this interview are indicative of the problems surrounding creative expression and vision in the film industry. He advocates for the ability to have free will in regards to what one puts out, to not be locked into a set way of doing things, and this to me is extremely admirable. Creativity ebbs and flows, and it should never be repressed for something more formal. A vision and the ability to enact it can produce wonderful things. I believe Chase Irvin's catalog is evidence enough of that. And now back to the interview. I actually just saw Blonde recently, and I was a big fan of it. I feel like the, the nudity and everything else in it is a necessary part of the story almost. I mean, especially when you're telling like the story of someone like Marilyn Monroe, who's always been perceived as like a sex symbol, as someone the audience has always seen as just a body, pretty much, I feel like. You can't make a movie like that without incurring some sort of nudity or like just exploration of that subject. And just going around a blonde too. And what are your most recent projects? I also got a chance to see a God's Creatures, the A24 film. I was a big fan of that one as well. They're just so conceptually different. You know, they uh, balance on two different themes so much. And I just wanted to hear about like just your process. How do you like handle artistic shifts like that? You know, you go from shooting blonde, which uses a lot of, like you were saying, spontaneous editing and different tricks, like the aspect ratio and different filters that you're using. And then something like a God's Creatures, which I feel like is more observational, taking more like a, it's like a standby approach, but I really enjoyed both of the films. Just wanted to hear about how you balance that out when you switch like that. It's actually kind of painful for me. I say that because I'm torn. There's two versions of myself in a way. Like here, the best sort of example I could give is I grew up listening to Tupac, Biggie Smalls, Wu-Tang. They were experimenting artistically with obscenity, NWA, all those. But then the other part of me grew up listening to jazz. My mother was a jazz vocalist. So the way I partition that is like the obscenity versus the romantic. Like to me, blonde was an expression of obscenity. I was embodying the sentiment of a rapper, like Tupac or something, you know what I mean? Like riffing on stuff. Anyway, that's kind of a simple way to say it. But then God's Creatures was like jazz in a way where it's this classical sound and it's strings and there was still improvisation in it, but it was much more romantic, much more in that way sort of try to step on the film. It's weird. It's like anytime I look at a project, I try to weave in both. One narratively the demands one over the other. But it's sort of like my attitude at the time too. Like at the moment coming off of the film that I'm working on right now, I'm much more accessing the obscenity. And I think the next film I would like to do is more romantic. Because when you get into these rhythms, you sort of want to challenge yourself with different sort of aesthetic approaches to the material. But not every material requires that from you, so you have to go seek it. Blonde is a plotless film. 
And that's a very hard type of film to create because it completely relies on performance and emotions. As a spectator, you basically connect and bond with the character and you weave through the story through that bond. Whereas a plot-driven film is more on story points and sort of a logic that happens between those. That's your guide into the film and you can stay in the film regardless of the acting or the emotions. You don't really need great acting with the plot-driven film. The spectators sort of woven into the plot and they're guided by that. But what I'm saying is when I think of what I would want to do next, I think it may be something that is more plot-driven because I've just been doing these films that are plotless and would consider God's Creature a more plot-driven film. So then I go into like, okay, in certain ways I'm using my intellect and we're making these connections, but then I'm also trying to do things such as, okay, so the whole concept of subjectivity in a film is like you're representing a particular character's point of view, but there's another way to express that is through mise-en-scene. So you can express a character, you could have a complete tableau and, and create the Persimian classical frame, but maybe it's the green on the wall that expresses her inner desire or the warm light. So you create these metaphors that are actually expressing the psychological experience of the character through the physical space and the light and this and that, rather than point of view as if it's the camera. So that was happening in God's Creatures too. Like we were trying to create a sensorial experience, but through the mise-en-scene rather than the direct point of view of the character. It's super hard to do because it's much more collaborative and it requires a lot of communication and preconception, which isn't necessarily my strongest thing. So it, it takes like a different version of myself. I understand when you say like, plotless i'm thinking also about lemonade and you know again this kind of surreal interweaving in fact we've had it scheduled for a long time interview warson shire the poet who provided the kind of the stories as well that went into that but it is also plotted but again you have this life you have the music you have this complex layering that's none of it ever heavy-handed it's kind of weaves and drifts yeah yeah, it's much more character, I guess. It's in the tradition of There'll Be Blood or Taxi Driver, which I think are films that are trying to harness the character and the plot is sort of maybe, to me, I would label that plotless, where it's actually guided by something that the character is creating in their world. And it's not necessarily like the ticking time bomb is about to go off at this particular hour. And there's these events that solve, you know, like a Marvel movie is completely plot. In fact, it's so dense in plot that in some ways it loses the character or the character becomes more of a symbol than a human. And as you contrast those two very strong, iconic, you know, in they define what we think of what beauty is, like Marilyn Monroe and today Beyonce. And although it could be more different because Beyonce really owns her image. She's not a victim of her image, like she owns it. And also, I want to weave in also Spike Lee, again, owns his production company, punching back, not having the roles of reverse in that sense, like very much powerful artists, longevity, right? Spike is an auteur. He's expressing his sentiment 
and his culture and the things that he's learned in his life through his craft. Beyonce, similarly, she's been a musician her whole life. She's been an icon since she was like 14 or 15 or something like that, 16, you know, for so young. And when we were doing Lemonade, Khalil Joseph and I, we talked a lot about how Beyonce must have maybe skipped this moment in our lives that most people have where we're coming up in our 20s, sort of discovering ourselves. In Lemonade, we were really trying to explore that she's coming to herself now that she has a daughter and that she's married and she's trying to harness a family life and these themes that she was singing about in the music. We were sort of trying to consider that and how we were going to tell that story too. And then also legacy and family. And, you know, that was the reason why we shot in New Orleans. On Lemonade specifically, we didn't do any treatment or anything. Khalil and I met in New Orleans and we started scouting. And through the scouting period, we come up with the concept and the ideas. But the scouting's unique even because we're basically connecting with liaisons. So we're connecting with the fiancé family member. We're connecting with the security guy that runs security for Beyonce there in New Orleans. And that guy, you know, he used to be a stripper at a strip club when he was in his early 20s. And we're going to the strip club and we're seeing all his friends who are laughing at him. And it's like, all of a sudden you get to an alien part of a culture that exists as an underbelly that is so hard to access because everyone's basically presenting a stereotype typically. So then that's sort of what we were trying to get to on that. And that was really intuitive for Khalil's way of working, who also I consider an art tour director. Yeah, and you've done a lot of work on music videos. And it also seems freeing, you know, the ability to go back and forth between longer film projects and then just the experimentation or the quick change process of music videos. Yeah, it sort of came to me that it's like I think less about different genres and different types of categories in which I can work within it, but much more like which projects allow me to express my own identity that I have, the content of my character and how I can express that. And oftentimes that might not be a film. I've worked when I first started in the business and I was shooting, I shot some films very early when I was like in my early 20s and I found them less creative than anything I had ever done. There wasn't enough time. It was about executing a shot list. It was about lighting things more at the speed so that you can get everything that you need so you can basically create the film and the edit. And I disliked it. And so I started experimenting in different things. And that journey has taken me on kind of a different route. Like for a while, I've only done one movie a year. And then I may not do a movie that year, but I'm doing a lot of fine art. Or, you know, I worked with Adam Pendleton and Dina Lawson and Khalil Joseph and just fine artists. And we'll do works that'll be exhibited in museums and stuff like that. But I'm always just getting opportunities to sort of express what I'm feeling at the time. Whereas if I had a different need, I might have just concentrated on films and then I would have, you know, there's projects that have come on my doorstep that have been big budget projects that, you know, are superhero or whatnot, but I've always declined because I really have a need for freedom. And when I say that, I mean specifically freedom of interference from others. 
And I know that when you're spending a certain amount of money, you will get that interference. But then there's the other form of freedom, which is having the resources to act on your free will. So really, the only way that I get those opportunities is working with guys like Spike Lee, where he gets the resources just enough to act on his free will. But then he also protects the film so there's no interference and he'll get rid of anyone who's messing with that. And so I just try to find directors with a like mind and I'm lucky to work with them. And I hope to travel my whole career working with people like that or my whole life, you know. Let's talk a little bit about Black Klansmen, because I didn't know where you could find comedy within the Klan. You know, again, the story itself is absurd about Ron Stallworth, the real life character. <laughs> but just tell us a little bit for those who haven't seen it. And how do you find the comedy out of a story about the Klan and police? Yeah, that was like a really confusing period for me because I felt very connected to Spike and I just moved to New York at the time. And what a welcoming hand, like one of the, you know, the king of Brooklyn sort of being like, welcome to New York, you know, and I just moved there. So it was like such a gift. When I reflect on the material, to be honest with you, the reason that I took the film was actually much more about a need to feel connected to my father. And when I read the part of the script where the guys in the KKK blow up in a car bomb, <laughs> I just saw my dad laughing in my mind and sitting in the theater laughing because he would have found that so funny and ironic. And that's why I took the film was so I could give him that gift of laughter because I found meaning in that. And the challenges of like in the pre-production period, Spike has his way of working and it's sort of fun and it's not as serious. It's like things just made sense to him in a way that with other directors I've worked with, not so much. Like there's such a difference between Spike Lee and Andrew Dominic. It's like crazy. Andrew Dominic, he would do great harm to himself to make the movie that he would want to make. Like great harm. So hardcore. I've never seen anything like it. Endless working, obsessing about a film, calling me in the wee hours of the morning or evening. And then it was just kind of like sporadic, but sincere and charming. And then Spike is much more like, he has his office at 40 acres. He puts in work down there when he's on his other times, he's like on CNN or he's hosting a party with his family or he's at the Knicks or like a Yankees game or other things like he has sort of this other life. And he's also a persona. So even just walking around with him, he's like one of the most recognizable figures in America. So he's also playing a role. It was really fascinating learning from both of them. But I don't remember so well reconceiving Black Klansmen. I remember, I guess the thing that I remember is on day one of the shoot and seeing how the actors were portraying these characters, my interpretation of the film completely changed. And I was totally going off of my instincts from that point on. Because when you read the screenplay, you're hearing these racist things, but they're not necessarily coming off the same way as the actor portrays them. The KKK guys are like buffoons and, you know, they're not so realistic. But then Adam Driver is actually a really realistic actor. So then all of a sudden it's like you're watching these scenes get blocked and rehearsed and it's like, whoa, what's going on? This is not what I read. So then you instantly go and, okay, 
I'm going to do this and we'll do this. And, you know, you sort of just come out of that based off of your instincts. So it was fun. Oh, it looked so fun to make. And at the same time, it is, you know, you see the artistry of the palette and, and all these things. So it's still very much like art, but I understand also your in service to the comedy. I would like to also just talk a little bit about, we don't understand in the audience. We just kind of sense the psychology of the camera. And some people think like, oh, it just happened that way. If you might like break down a few of the things like the camera placement, or the camera movement, you know, pulling off those things that combine to bringing us into a world. Yeah, there's a lot of things involved. It goes down to sort of different feelings about how things composition, really. I think a lot about the psychological state of the character, but then I try to see the film as a whole and how it reflects certain sequences. Like I said earlier, there's moments where you could be more observational and it's less about what's happening in the point of view of the character and how that reflects in composition is really important to me. And I not only see composition as geometric shapes that sort of create a window for the spectator to be guided into the scene through. But I also see emotions as a form of composition. The actor, the character is composition to me. And so there's two things going on in any shot. There's the geometric shapes and the way that I create a window for the spectator to enter the film. But then also the thing that comes out from the screen, which is that of the emotional thing that's going on. And how is that composed? And I don't have control of that. So then I have to respond to it so that there's harmony. Because that's the thing I think is really beautiful in film is actually the harmony. It's musical. It's the cinematography, the emotions acting in harmony to one another. And that doesn't always mean that they're like perfectly matched. One could be juxtaposing the other. If you know what I mean, like there could be something happening really dramatic and emotional and we could be completely dispassionate about the representation of that. And in fact, it does a better job articulating what's going on. There's a film that I like quite a bit. It's called Under the Skin, and that is a completely subjective film, but it's portrayed almost entirely in tableaus. But it's a reflection of someone alien coming to Earth in a observing so it's a complete point of view in such a beautiful way but it's always these tableaus or these very simple frames but that's how jonathan glazer articulates the psyche of an alien and i thought that was so beautiful so i see the harmony there and even in that film there's a moment near the end where it turns handheld when the other character pours gasoline on her and sets her on fire and the camera's running through the, right at the edge of the forest and it goes out and it's just scattered and it's on fire and it's moving like crazy and then it cuts to the tableau and she's burning and dying. And then it cuts to another tableau of the man searching for her and then it cuts, you know, it's just so beautiful. But you sort of repress the spectator to those moments in that film where she's actually becoming human in the moment of death. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think about things in these sort of sometimes global ways. And I think I sort of create an ideology to the film that encompasses a type of composition. And then sometimes it's arbitrary. I really like using negative space. And what I mean by that is I will use composition and geometric shapes to create space 
from the character. I'll frame them in a particular way. I'll, I'll crop their head or I'll move the camera in a particular way that articulates that in negative space to me. And then in lighting the same way, I'll create a silhouette that to me is a negative or I'll use positive space, which is the inverse of that, which I label tenebrism, where you create the background so dark that it's just the character and you see that in blonde a lot where she's just lit by this front light and everything else turns to shadow. So I'm playing with these different ideas of things that I just felt connected to that I understand through my own things that I responded to visually as I consumed art and then developed my own skills about how to do that. Now they're at a point where it's instinctual. It's beautiful when you come to that point where you finally absorb it, where you kind of don't even know how you're doing it, but just like second nature, like it just, yeah. it seems to happen, but it doesn't happen without all those hours of work. Under the skin, it's interesting, I interviewed the author of the original book. I haven't yet interviewed Jonathan Glazer, but Michelle Faber, who wrote that's a very strange work. And I think the film even brings it to this other metaphysical level that I think that you do in many of your films. You touch, there's the surface story. There's, as you say, this emotional story. And then I think it's interesting how you said about like spaces and this kind of geography of the plot. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned Australia. And I've always been intrigued by this concept that they have the Aboriginal concept of song lines. You know, mm -hmm. they, they don't like own a land like the way we own land in parcels. It's like the distance that a song traveled. If I can understand this, it seems a little bit like a conceptual framework that you might have that's free-flowing. Where that song traveled, that is like a territory that they would own. That's their territory, their, their ancestral yeah. land. It's, it's well, interesting. Almost all of the Zhaoan people that I interacted with, their history and their lineage and their stories were all expressed through art. There was no scripture. There's no books there's nothing like that in encyclopedias or anything in their language. It was only songs and in paintings. That's how they communicated. And that to me is so beautiful. And we do that too, but we sort of give it a different meaning now that we're in a capitalistic society. Like even art, I think, is now viewed as a commodity, whereas in their time it wasn't. It was like a language in a way to express feelings and ideas, you know, and our culture has sort of shifted in different ways. Like even the way I define an artist is a, a, you know, person with a uniquely strong will. In that statement, it doesn't mean that they have to produce something that is a commodity that generates. In fact, a doctor could be an artist, an athlete could be an artist, a gardener could be an artist. You know, it's like it's really about their will and how much their desire and the need behind, you know, they're pursuing an excellence in the craft that they choose. Anyway, I digress a little bit, but it's less about sort of the labels. Yeah, I like that definition. And I think that also maybe being an artist is the, a measure by which you are alive. So like, as you look at children, all children are artists, no matter what, like every, their approach is so creative and they're so vital. Yeah. Well, in a way they're more pure because to go back to what I learned from Judo Krishnamurti is that a child is not going to have the memory to sort of create something through thoughts. It's going to be almost entirely instinctual or based off of like a novel interpretation. I think they call it divergent thinking where they can, I can't remember 
remember exactly the tests they did, but they handed these paper clips to young children in grade, you know, one or whatever, and they said, draw the paper clip. And the kids would draw bridges and buildings in the shape of the paper clip. And as the child got older and they did these tests periodically through their ages, the more the paper clip became a paper clip. And that divergent thinking had been dwindled out of them through the education process. So in a way, the child is the most pure form of creativity because they're not going to be bringing in things from the past. They're going to be completely novel all the time. Not all the time, but as they age, it'll become more difficult for them to access. And in fact, to be honest with you, even my observation of some of the directors that I've worked with that I like the most, or I've felt most connected to have been sometimes very childlike. Not, I don't mean that with a negative connotation. I mean it with they spoke in riddles and they said things that didn't make sense or they had not made sense, but they weren't so clear. It was almost like they, what they said could be interpreted a few different ways. It was like they basically speaking in metaphors, to be honest with you. There's multiple interpretations to what they're saying. It's not just one definite meaning. And then their enthusiasm goes really high about something. And then other times when it's not working, it's just like bottoming. And so that's what I mean by childlike. Like even Andrew was like that. When he was watching the monitor, it was like he was in the movie. I'd never seen anyone like it. It was just like you could see his face reacting to different things they were saying and emotions. It wasn't like he was thinking about the script or anything. He was totally in it. He was in what they say in jazz, in the pocket. Yeah, I think that that sense of lack of boundaries. I remember when I was a child and like for a whole year, I believed because my bookshelf was made out of wood and paper is made out of wood. I thought that if I sprinkled seeds or kind of bath powder on my bookshelf, that it actually gave birth to books. For a whole year, mm -hmm. I love books. And then I kind of figured it, but it sprouted books every once in a while. So it seemed to work. And that's that kind yeah. of magical thinking that children have. Totally. But it's like, there's a truth to that. In my mind, the bookshelf is there to support and nourish the books. So that in a way, it's a metaphor for exactly giving birth to it. And yeah, I thought it was a tree of books. Yeah. <laughs> I was sad to learn it didn't happen. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. I wish I always had access to that type of creativity. I don't think you can force it. There isn't a formula. All you can do is sort of create an environment where that could happen. And it's more likely that that could happen. And that's sort of my focus, to be honest, to talk about the sort of shot lists and the ideology and those things is I'm actually much more concentrated, I guess, not intentionally, but trying to create an idea or a concept about what would this scene or this shooting day, how do we set it up so creativity is most likely to happen based off of this script being the stimuli for that to happen? So then I think about, okay, how many extras could we do? Does the camera wander? Is it like a point of view? Is it a ghost sort of like interested in the character for one moment? And as soon as it gets bored, it's finding something else or... Is it more physical or is it, you know, like all these different ideas I consider, but then I try to create a practical way of making it most likely that we can express that freely. For example, I use a lot of the resources allocated to my departments 
to sort of be able to react to things like on the film that I'm working on right now. I have a steady cam operator on the movie the whole time. I have one of the top dolly grips who's in charge of the camera movement when not on steady cam. We have a jib arm, we have a dolly, we have a remote head. We have all these tools that are dedicated to our craft almost continuously. So when we see the scene, we react to it and we can figure out a way intuitively to respond to it. And these are the constraints that we operate within. That's our language. So it becomes more automatic and creativity can happen. Whereas it's less about, you try to create a scenario where you're not stressing about, well, this is what we want to do, but we don't really have this, that we can't do it. And okay, let's try this. We're trying to alleviate some of those fears and just sort of attack every scene with like, okay, I see it this way. Okay, let's do it this way. It's more play. I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes it's about deciding what is what type of tyranny you will impose on yourself, whether that's through a particular tool or budget constraints or this or that, like all those things are gifts because that basically creates the determinant will. And that's the thing that contributes most to a film is just really giving it your all. That's all I can do on a movie. I can't really make a movie good or not. Because that's decided by the spectator. That's not in my control. All I can do is give it everything that I have. Like, that's just the love I have to give. So why bring in all these other things? Just set it up so you can give it everything that you got each time. In those theoretical considerations about how a scene can function or be rendered or shot or executed or all these things, just think of it as, oh, this is the challenge I want authenticity. How do we create an environment that where that's more likely to happen? Because it's never going to be something that I can enforce. And the more I try to enforce it, the less likely it'll happen. So it's very tricky. It's a lot. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There's definitely times where I think back like I would have liked to have done that differently. But that's always going to be the feeling no matter how well you do it, you know. Yes, I think that it's very Buddhist or Taoist, this very lack of your, you're open, but you can't control it. Maybe it's a controlled improvisation. I do want to discuss Hannah, which again is quite different, intimate, quieter film. Just tell me a little bit about your approach to that. And I think it's the best performance I've seen by Charlotte Rampling. Yeah, that was quite a lovely experience. I really adore working with Andrea Pilaro. We sort of started out together and I learned a lot from him. He has so much integrity as an artist and I met him when I was quite young. Our approach to the film, it was similar to the sense where we were trying to articulate her psychological experience through the mise-en-scene. Like the place she inhabits is very much filled with metaphors and tones that we created meanings behind or suggestions. They weren't symbols, they were more, it could be this or that. And really, we were trying to study what happens to an individual when a codependent relationship is dissolved. In the film, it sort of is a bit of a mystery, and it's concealed for a large part what had happened between her and her husband or what actions her husband did that put him in prison. But the film isn't largely about that. It's much more about what's happening in her when somebody she's partners with for most of her life is gone and what kind of pain that is and the shame behind it and the dependency sort of eviscerating and 
That's such a interesting thing to me. I guess one of the ways I really like working with Andrea is that he's much more interested in questions. He doesn't necessarily have a map of this is how I'm going to coerce the spectator into feeling. He's actually just presenting questions almost continuously throughout the film. And it's the spectator's role to contribute to the film and with their own interpretations of about how might that have felt. And I really like that form of filmmaking because I've been able to watch different people in my life watch the film and have completely different emotional reactions to it. Because I think even in the example in the film, people that I've known have gone through similar abuses in their life and how they interpret those people that they may have believed were contributing to it, but maybe not. They never knew. So they felt feelings of compassion or sadness or regret or all these different things. I really, really like that way of filmmaking a lot. And what I mean by that is making the film is much more a series of questions rather than projecting an answer to something, an antidote to something. Yeah. We're evaluating things based off the rightness and wrongness, to be honest with you. It's much more like you try to humanize any action and rather than you as a director or cinematographer labeling and diagnosing something as it, it is this, it is wrong. You know, I'm much more interested in the question. Yes, I think that not imposing a morality, again, it's a situation. And I think that it's also more true to life, this process of making a film like a series of questions, because how much would even know the people in our lives, but most people are strangers to us. We can only guess. We do not know. Even sometimes we are a mystery to ourselves. Yeah, I could use violence as an example of that. Like, I feel like almost all violence that's expressed that I've witnessed in my life is that not of a sadistic nature, but much more counter violence. Anyone expressing a violent temperament is doing it in their mind in a defensive way. And uh, I believe that is the true in almost any case. So it depends on the perspective in which you're portraying like that character is doing it and they know they're acting violent because that person is deserving of suffering in their mind because they did something that was wrong but in the other person's mind they did something that was right because that person was deserving of suffering so then it's like almost all forms of violence are that of counter violence it's a reaction to something that was violent. And so you get in this feedback loop where it's really dependent on the perspective of the individual that you're portraying. So how in cinema, in a way, do you express that violence? That's why I like films a lot, like even There'll Be Blood. The character's very violent in that film. But then in the most violent moment when he kills a con artist who is portraying himself as his brother, he does it as retribution and vengeance to this person who's taken from him so he's justified in the action of violence so it's much more i guess what i'm saying is there's a depth to these actions that people take even violent or that of rightness and wrongness there's a depth to that and there's space for empathy no matter who no matter what the action 
Whereas there's another way to tell that film story, and that is depicting the individual as one thing, and they become a symbol of that. And that is dehumanizing to me. And I much more like portrayals that there's questions about all that stuff. And it's basically my role as a spectator to interpret it the way that I would like, based off of my experiences as a human being. Like even, I'll bring up There'll Be Blood one more time, but even when he kills Paul Dano's character, you sort of celebrate in the end because you hate him even more than Daniel. Because <laughs> that guy's more of a charlatan and you know him, you've experienced that guy in your life and he's caused you pain and you've always wanted to see that guy suffer. So in the end, when it's like this absurd ending and it's almost has humor involved in it in a Kubrickian way that you then sort of accept something really, depending on who you are, you accept something really dark and violent as good or just, or it satiates a need that you had for that vengeance, you know? And it's it's fucking with you in so many ways that I think that type of cinema is really strong, where it is these questions and it's never these definite answers and it is presenting all these flaws and all these things that are human that are in some ways suicidal. And that's sort of our path in a way. We want love so deeply that we kill it all the time. It reminds me of a line from the short story by the great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor in A Good Man. It's hard to find. There's an old woman, she's religious, and the family encounters a carload of escaped convicts. And so she recognizes them. And so the one kill, kills her, stabs her. But right before he does it, she says, you know, you could have been my own son. She has this sense of compassion even at the moment of being killed. And that's true. That duality of being able to transfer the compassion to someone that you might not in normal life have compassion for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first film that Andre and I worked together on was called Medes and its studies at Philicide, which is, if you're not familiar with the term, it's when a parent kills their entire family. And oftentimes, historically, when neighbors were interviewed or uh, colleagues were interviewed regarding the person who committed the filicide, they would always say he loved nothing more than his family. I could never imagine him doing that. That action is like shrouded in such despair that it's almost the desperation stimulates the action. It's the suffering that they have no other way to pacify that they would end up doing something so horrific. And the film studies that. And so you humanize these characters and you can feel the tragedy of it because you're not necessarily, you know, it's not like some guy in his country farm barn just hatching a plot to like murder his family. It's a completely different human thing that stimulates that action. And it's in all of us, sadly. People deal with it in different ways. It's true. We do have these shadows and demons in us. And I guess it it's to keep those at bay. And I think it's wonderful when the arts can express that for us, that we don't have to live through it, but we can experience it and understand those acts of desperation. So in closing, as you think about the future and the importance of the arts and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, that's a good question. I'm puzzled. I feel an expression of the individual is something that I would really like to see more of. 
And I fear that there was a moment where the internet existed as a space where we can all express our unique intricacies and voice our own identity. But I've seen it in some other ways actually forming the antithesis of that, where we're becoming more programmed into a consensus and a collective understanding and the individual is less and we're becoming much more conformists. And I would like artists in the future to become connected to the self and the individual more and express their own individual will and their own theoretical considerations about how cinema can function and how it contributes to the lives of others in their own unique way and expressing those without the constraints that are necessarily being imposed by the culture that we're living in now. When I say the term identity, I mean less about the art itself and them expressing their identity as art, much more talking about the thing that they are giving birth to has an identity and that that is allowed to kind of live its own life and be what it is void of them. So it's hard for me to describe, but it's sort of like we're so much in the culture where it's the artist is as much of the art as the Spike is like that, to be honest with you. Spike Lee is like that because he, you know, they open his films that it's a Spike Lee joint and he's a part of the art itself. But I'm also wanting to promote young people into thinking that the art exists as its own thing and it has its own identity and it only captures the sentiment that you have at the time. And that that's always going to be changing and just let that go. And once you've created it, let it go and let it be its own organism rather than just creating a version of yourself that becomes a commodity. It's hard for me to describe because there's a lot of things going through my mind right now in terms of like what's happening with social media and how that's reflecting in art. I go back to the individual will over the collective will. But I say this with a pretentious kind of ideal behind it because that's sort of the thing that interests me most in, in art is seeing the soul of the person that created it in some way, that humanness. And that sometimes a lot of art that's sort of given in my craft specifically is not expressing that so much. It's more checking the boxes of what we as a collective consider good. And thank you for the courage of your questions and the courage of your not conforming. Because I know it's difficult, as you point out, the commercial imperatives, especially within making film, of course, it takes a tremendous amount of courage. So thank you, Chase Irvin, for sharing your search for truth in conveying the human condition and your compassionate camera work, which tells important stories about complex characters of beauty and psychological nuance and your films that just weave the romantic alongside the everyday. So thank you for your important contributions to cinematic storytelling and for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to say, because you said you weren't sure that you were a good communicator, I think you're a great communicator and I would say teacher. Thank you. That means a lot to me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Trammell Sisson with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Trammell Sisson. 
and the digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.